This is a Federal News Network podcast. After four years of directing acquisition and sustainment activities in the Pentagon, you change a thing or two. You also learn a thing or two. Now former Undersecretary Ellen Lord, who served for the duration of the Trump administration, has joined the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory as a senior fellow. And she joins me now. Ms. Lord, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom, and thank you to the Federal News Network for talking about some of my favorite topics. Let's begin with the Applied Physics Laboratory itself. That sounds awfully scientific for someone who was in the business and acquisition and financial sustainment realm at the Pentagon. I actually started my life on the scientific side of things. I have actually a master's degree in chemistry, so I love all things technical. However, the reason I joined Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory as a senior fellow is really because they're solving some of the nation's most complex national security and space exploration challenges. And I see my expertise at the intersection of national security and industry. So I'm hoping to bring some of that to the lab. They've got a great mission. They have an incredible track record of really critical contributions to critical challenges in the nation has, and fantastic people, Christine Fox and Ralph Semmel. I guess you could also say that some of the great scientific work and great technical work that is done by various agencies and labs and so forth can be undone if the supporting acquisition and sustainment and financial underpinnings aren't done correctly. A lot of things can be late or things can go wrong. So in many ways, it's a continuum, isn't it? Absolutely. First of all, you need the statute to be able to develop a policy. And we worked very closely with Congress on that. They were great partners for us. So we really built on everything that acquisition professionals had done before we came in about four years ago and really were focused on trying to very rapidly accelerate innovation in terms of acquisition to field capability to the warfighter at the speed of relevance, as Secretary Mattis would have said. Sure. And uh, this took a couple of different forms. One was increased use of other transaction authorities, the OTAs, but also the rewriting. And I guess that's still underway in some sense of the 5000 series so-called policies for how regular acquisition is done. And that seems like two different difficult things to balance. Tell us more about the thinking process when those things were happening simultaneously. I think acquisition today in the Department of Defense requires a lot of what I call creative compliance. We obviously always have to do things legally, but we're asking our acquisition professionals to do a lot of critical thinking and only use those tools that they need. So we did actually complete the rewrite of the 5000 series, and we transformed it into what we call an adaptive acquisition framework. So there are six different pathways that allow acquisition professionals to most rapidly get programs on contract, whether those be hardware, software, a combination of the two, or services. Six different pathways, some of which use some of the newer authorities, such as other transaction authorities, but also the middle tier of acquisition, where we look at perhaps commercially available systems that only need an incremental investment to really militarize them and make them appropriate for the warfighter. So the whole idea is being creatively compliant and doing things quickly. 
and all of the service acquisition executives really partnered with us in acquisition and sustainment to make that happen. And of course, there's a large core of professional contracting officers throughout the many armed services and the fourth estate agencies in the Pentagon. And the bridge between a great new policy, a well-thought-out rewrite, a lot of industrial involvement, But it takes some doing to get that inculcated down into those acquisition people day to day. And that's where often a lot of reform founders is on just getting the thinking through the heads of the people that have to carry it out. How would you assess that progress so far? I think that there is a very good beginning. What we did was work closely with all of the military services and the agencies, as well as industry through the industry associations that we partnered very closely with so that it was a collaborative approach. Simultaneously, we used the Defense Acquisition University, DAU, to develop a curriculum and really deliver content in different ways to give acquisition professionals experiential learning, if you will. We brought in some of the PEOs and program managers that really embraced the new authorities and used our implementation guidance to really give real-life examples of how acquisition professionals could use the new policies. But it's an ongoing process, and we need to continue to make sure that individuals are given the materials, that they are trained, that it's not just ethereal policy, but there are actually tools that they can use. And in fact, we really reworked the way DAU delivers content, as well as delivering a new credentialing whole program where acquisition professionals get those skill sets at the time of need, much more like you would do if you were in the medical or dental industry and you have ongoing work you do to keep current. We're speaking with former Defense Undersecretary Ellen Lord. She's now a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. And I want to talk about the F-35 for a moment, and not in the usual way that, you know, the ongoing problems that it has. But in many ways, it embodied kind of old thinking versus new thinking tension in the Pentagon, because the Air Force former acquisition fellow Will Roper pushed for a new generation digitally conceived platform. Others were pushing to continue and finish the F-35 maturity. And from your standpoint as the undersecretary, how do you balance that incredible pressure from people that are thinking one way, people that are thinking another way, and nobody's completely wrong, and yet you have to do something with respect to budget requests and future program planning? There are finite budgets available, and as we all know, we'll have flat or declining budgets, even if the DOD budget goes up in absolute dollars a little bit with inflation, it will be coming down. So the challenge that DOD has to address is what are those threats out there? What are our adversaries doing, and what is the best balance we have in terms of fielding capabilities. Now, that's a challenge given that there are lots of opinions, both on the Hill as well as in the building, as well as the general public. But I think General C.Q. Brown has done a very good job of articulating how to look at the TAC air mix with his four plus one 
The F-35 performs extremely well. Its sustainment costs right now are unacceptable. Its operational availability overall is unacceptable. The value for the actual price per airframe today is in the reasonable area, but there is a lot of work to be done. So the challenge becomes with the F-35 at this pivotal moment, how does the department take the joint program office and transition it now to be a little bit more fully integrated with the services and take advantage of all of the learnings over the years that both the Air Force and the Navy have with sustaining their aircraft and keep those unique F-35 issues within the JPO and allow the services to use that incredible sustainment infrastructure they have and all of the talent to address the F-35. There needs to be a balance. The F-35 is not only critical to the U.S. warfighter, but as everyone knows, when the U.S. fights, we don't fight alone. We go with our partners and allies, and our partners and allies are a very large part of the F-35 program. We need to address that and realize that that interoperability is what allows us to prevail in the multi-domain battle. So the F-35 is critical, I believe, to our warfighting capability today and for some time. We do need sixth gen, but the real challenge is the balance between the fifth gen and the sixth gen. We have to make sure that we take all of those investments we've made as a nation and we get a return on that investment with the F-35. And right now, the best way to do that is to get the sustainment costs down. All right. And suppose you had two, three, four more years in the job as undersecretary, and if anyone would be able to have the fortitude to do that level job for another four years, what would be the things you would have continued to try to push for? What do you feel might have been left undone that you wish you'd gotten a little bit further down the line? I think we've made some good progress in a variety of areas, but we need continued focus and energy. One of those would be looking at the cyber threats out there. When we rewrote the acquisition system, we added cybersecurity as a fundamental part of it, both ensuring that the defense industrial-based networks were secure through CMMC or the Cyber Maturity Model Certification, which we continue to involve that. In fact, Johns Hopkins APL was a huge part of that, along with Carnegie Mellon University, SEI. They were the two organizations I reached out to initially to bring the independent thinking and the technical domain expertise to CMMC. So we need to continue the push on that. Industry has embraced it making good progress. We continue to need to make sure that we cyber harden all of the new platforms and weapon systems moving. So that's one area. Secondly, we did a lot of work in terms of acknowledging that our platforms and weapon systems are hardware enabled, yet software defined. And we need to make sure that we rapidly update 
software as it's developed. So we really leverage some of the great resources that the department has with the Defense Science Board, with the Defense Innovation Board, and we studied software and we came up with a number of recommendations how to deal with software differently than hardware. We partnered with Congress and we have Pathfinder projects looking at a software color of money where you really can't differentiate if you're embracing agile and DevSecOps between development, production, and sustainment of software. So I want to see those Pathfinder projects finished, and I want to see further incorporation. I also want to make sure that we continue to embrace digital engineering. That is the key to the future in my mind. The Navy did a great job in terms of sustainment, looking at digital engineering in their shipyards to be able to make sure that they were able to repair different ships. What we need to do is make sure that digital engineering is a fundamental tenet of all programs going forward. The Air Force has Ground-based strategic deterrent, I think, is a poster child for digital engineering, a very, very strong PEO there. Again, interestingly enough, that PEO did a year at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab and learned a lot of what he applied to GBSD there. So digital engineering not only gives you the security, but it gives you the ability to have everything in one cloud where instead of fat-fingering PowerPoints for gate reviews, you just go right in and look at what's being done. So it gives you speed. So those are some of the things that I would continue working on. And I'm so very excited that Mike Brown has been nominated as Undersecretary for Acquisition and Sustainment. He's bringing just the type of talent and experience that we need to the position. He used over 60, I think it was, OTA contracts at DIU. He understands commercial companies. And our real challenge is to diversify that defense industrial base and get more non-traditionals in there, more commercial companies. And I think Mike Brown's the guy to do it. And you, of course, earlier in your career worked for a couple of large defense contractors, and now you're on different boards and advisory groups and so forth where you will be possibly advising defense contractors. What would your main message to them be now in this new age of agile acquisition, agile software development, software definition, and all of this to be great contractors? They need to embrace digital engineering they need to address cybersecurity threats, and they need to move quickly to take commercial offerings out there today and tweak them to make them relevant for the Department of Defense. I think the area where this is most applicable is space, where we have so many new space companies, so much innovation we have space as the newest warfighting domain. General Raymond is doing, I think, extraordinary things in embracing new acquisition techniques. He's got the right spirit in terms of what he's trying to do. And I think we need enhanced dialogue between industry and government to make sure we really embrace all of the inventions, innovation, and actual applications that the commercial space industry has come up with 
to our national security interests. Because frankly, in space, things are a little blurred between what's commercial, what's national security, what's offensive, what's defensive. We need to think through that very carefully. Former Defense Undersecretary Ellen Lord is a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom, and thank you again to Federal News Network. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and and the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees we come and go, but the folks who who are grinding every day, who are at their desk no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.